Are you ready for the end of the world? This is your community spirit. The show about caring, sharing, and preparing for the changes needed in the world as we know it. Let's bring back the circle again. The circle of family, the circle of friends, the circle of being. Wake up and be healthy, and therefore wealthy, to the peace and joy of Mother Earth. This is your community spirit coming at you live, local, and in your face here on WDBX 91.1 FM. All right, and I think we've got uh, Orr on the line here. We're trying to get Orr by remote connection. Orr, can you hear us? Can you hear me now? Hmm. You there, Orr? All right, let's give this one last try with Orr. Orr, can you hear us now? I think Orr may be lost in... Digital reality somewhere. Um, well, we will get to the news then in just a moment. You will have plenty of news and happenings and events coming up to you. But first, a little more music. All right, hopefully we'll have Orr back next week, but digitally it wasn't working out this week. We will do our best to get it figured out by next week. In the meantime, we've got plenty of news and happenings to share. Let's see. What do we want to start with? Should we start with talking about Monsanto? That's always a good way to start our day. (laughs) Monsanto flirts with disaster, owns the world anyway. The top execs at Monsanto Corp. must be running around headquarters these days, like director James Cameron post-Titanic, screaming, We're king of the world! It's an understandable reaction. Between a likely Supreme Court win, the recently passed Monsanto Protection Act, and the company's victory over a government antitrust investigation, the company has been on quite a winning streak. Odd, then, to remember that less than three years ago, CNBC's stock market analyst Jim Cramer declared that Monsanto was the worst stock of 2010. This came just before Forbes magazine all but withdrew its 2010 accolade that Monsanto was, quote, company of the year. Monsanto had all the hallmarks of a troubled company. Its net income dropped nearly half by 2010. By October, its stock dropped almost that much. But those were just the most obvious indicators. While it's true that even at the time, the company dominated the seed industry, 85% of all corn planted in the U.S. that year contained Monsanto's genetically modified traits, its products were taking a beating both in the fields and in the mainstream press. Word spread of the rise of superweeds that were immune to Monsanto's pesticides, while farmers complained that Monsanto's new smart stack seeds were overpriced and no more effective than the old. At the same time, its flagship Roundup Ready product was about to go off patent, and analysts were expecting a flood of generic and cheaper pesticide-resistant seeds on the market. As if that weren't enough, Monsanto was locked up in a multi-year legal battle with one of its top competitors, DuPont. It's a battle that some analysts thought could topple Monsanto from its perch atop the biotech seed pyramid. Anti-Monsanto activists even looked at DuPont as a potential ally, since it had filed an antitrust lawsuit against its sworn enemy as part of the fight. But then the government got into the act when it initiated its own antitrust investigation that threatened Monsanto's core business. Oh, how the mighty have fallen. Yeah, for more information, you can sign up for our newsletter at info at yourcommunityspirit.org or check it out on grist.org where we get many of our ecological stories. So yeah, it's 
It's strange to me, you know, like, uh, Monsanto is, is making all these progress in some areas, but they're, they're really trying to survive, limp along, and get past some of their other troubles they're having. If it weren't for things like this Monsanto Protection Act and other things going on, they might actually just go belly up. In other news, tar sands oil spills in Arkansas and Minnesota. As the Obama administration mulls approval of the Keystone XL pipeline that would carry tar sands oil from Canada to Gulf Coast refineries, the heavy toxic gunk is already spilling out all over America. Last Wednesday, a southbound train carrying Canadian oil derailed in Minnesota, spilling about 15,000 gallons of tar sands crude, described by the Washington Post as, quote, a mixture of heavy bitumen and lighter dilutants. Two days earlier, an ExxonMobil pipeline carrying tar sands oil burst beneath a suburban neighborhood in Arkansas. The exact size of the spill hasn't yet been determined, but ExxonMobil says it's preparing to be able to clean up 42, no, 420,000 gallons, though it doesn't believe the spill is that large. The oil flooded yards and streets and led to the evacuation of 22 homes in Mayflower, a small community about 20 miles northwest of Little Rock. Yeah, this, this whole incident, the one in Arkansas in particular, is about the worst nightmare for the tar sands advocates. You know, thousands and thousands of gallons of tar sands oil spilling out into a suburban neighborhood and just totally ruining the yards, making people evacuate. I was saying that we should take uh, the, uh, the trailers for the old movie, The Blob, and do something about tar sands related to that. The invasion of the tar sands. Because it really is, it, it really does uh, bring home the point that these tar sands oils, in addition to being dangerous to the environment when they're burned, they're also just plain dangerous when you're transporting them across the country. And if Keystone XL goes through, there will surely be more of the same. So that's definitely some food for thought as we consider Keystone XL and as we hopefully say no to it.
Worldwide and other news, local schmokel. Why small-scale solutions won't save the world. I have a confession. I'm a cynic when it comes to living small. I like to garden and ride bikes. I buy locally whenever I can. But I don't think my personal lifestyle choices are going to save the world. And neither will yours. I'm not alone. Just ask Greg Scharzer, a frustrated Marxist activist with a Ph.D. in political science from York University, who also enjoys cycling and fair trade coffee. Scharzer's book, No Local, Why Small-Scale Alternatives Won't Change the World, is a bucket of ice water on fresh-faced progressive localism and an affront to the concept of micro-solutions altogether. Localism is a survival strategy, Scharzer writes, not a movement and not a solution. And here's, here's one of his quotes. Localism says we can change how we act within capitalism. If consumers don't like a community, they can demonstrate their commitment to a better one. Choose to support, uh, choose to support ethical, small-scale businesses, and little by little, the excesses of economic growth will disappear. Community gardening, farmers' markets, and biodiesel cooperatives will change the entrenched power of agribusiness, for example. Now, it's, I tend to... I don't have fix, mixed feelings about this perspective. Uh, on the one hand, you know, I do think... I do agree with the author that, you know, local solutions alone aren't going to fix everything. You know, if all we do is decide we're going to buy local veggies occasionally... And that's not going to solve some of the bigger systemic problems that we're facing. On the other hand, it is a good place to start, as long as you don't consider it the ending point. Um, let's see. Another quote here. Uh, I empathize with Greg Scharzer's frustrations, but I also feel hope. The micro-solutions may not be enough, but if they serve as an entry point to a deeper analysis and greater engagement, if they help feed a movement, that could be pretty damn macro. And yeah, I, that's what I, I agree with that. That, you know, it's even if just, it, it's like recycling, for example, you know, recycling alone isn't going to be enough to change our relationship with the environment. There's all sorts of industrial practices and transportation practices that we're going to have to change in order to live sustainably. But recycling can help you get thinking in a mindset of cycles of consumption and reuse and seeing, seeing cycles as cyclical rather than uh, not really realizing that you live in a cyclical world, that's a start. It's the same with local. You know, buying local, supporting local, will help support all of those local businesses in your community and help your local community thrive. And then from that place, once you have a strong local community, you can work on other systemic solutions to the regional, national, international problems that we're facing. All right, in other news, Citigroup, renewables will triumph and natural gas will help. Banking giant Citigroup recently issued a report that ought to thrill fans of renewable energy. However, tucked inside the good news is a pill that some Greens will find difficult to swallow. The good news is that Citi expects renewable energy to triumph. It believes that typical forecasts like those from the International Energy Association are too pessimistic. Contrary to a certain strain of conventional wisdom, it says... Shale gas will not crowd out renewable energy. Quite the opposite. The pill, though, city expects it will take lots of natural gas, 
more than we're currently using in the medium term, to get a power system run primarily on renewables. In fact, renewables and shale gas, according to City Group, are in a symbiotic, symbiotic relationship, each helping the other increase market share. If that's true, a moratorium on fracking, called for by many Greens, might serve to inhibit the spread of renewable energy. For the complete article, you can sign up for our newsletter at info at yourcommunityspirit.org. Now, I can see the, the point that they're making, you know, that's, uh, you know, natural gas is supposedly going to, you know, if it's cheap and readily available, then it will help fight against the, uh, the other types of fossil fuels, coal, oil. But we could just, we could just do renewables entirely, you know. We could take mar- actions outside of the market, political actions, in order to change our course away from fossil fuels. The Citigroup analysis focuses on a purely sort of economic forecast model, whereas we live in a supposedly a democracy and we could make decisions related to our fossil fuel use. But let's see if we're actually going to do that or if we're just going to let all these natural gases uh, go through and let all, all the fracking pollute our water and our air and our land. We'll see. Walmart is crowdsourcing by getting its customers to make its deliveries. Crowdsourcing is cool. It's an element of the sharing economy, which we are fans of uh, and have talked about extensively here on the radio show. So we're naturally curious about the news that a Walmart exec wants to get in on this phenomenon in order to help the company deliver online orders. Quote, I see a path to where this is, a crowd, where this is crowdsourced, the chief executive of Walmart.com told Reuters. What he means, though, is that instead of employing delivery drivers to bring packages to customers, they'll get other customers to do it instead. Basically, the idea is that customers tell Walmart where they live and would pick up online orders for people located on their route between store and home. In exchange, the delivery people get a discount on their Walmart bill. In theory, this might save some gas, but keep in mind that for Walmart, an innovation is basically any strategy for spending less on human labor. These routes were already being served by delivery companies, which are pretty good at making really, really efficient routes. Oh, and which employ people trained to do these jobs and pay them an hourly wage higher than 10 cents off that package of fruit juice. And here's another quote. Such a crowdsourced delivery system may not be as reliable as FedEx or United Parcel Service, which have insured drivers, he added. We have another 
to use for this plane. Cheaping out. So, yeah, I mean, in theory, it sounds like one of those good things, like, you know, oh, you can save gas and have people just deliver packages on the way. But in practice, they're just really cutting out jobs, and, and surprise, surprise, that's what Walmart is doing. It's an interesting idea, though. I wonder if there are some cases in which some businesses could make use of that idea. All right, we've got to get to some happenings. But first, one more headline here. IMF says global subsidies to fossil fuels amount to $1.9 trillion a year, and that's probably an underestimate. A new report from the International Monetary Fund tries to tally up fossil fuel subsidies around the world and finds that they add up to an eye-popping $1.9 trillion a year. That's 2.5% of the global GDP. Now, this still makes no sense whatsoever to me, uh, that they, we still give such subsidies to the fossil fuel industry. I mean, the fossil fuel industry is making massive amounts of profit. Why do we need to give $1.9 trillion a year to an industry that is actively destroying the ecosystems of our planet? Well, I guess because they pay off politicians to get those subsidies. All right, some holidays. Today is National Deep Dish Pizza Day. Really, every day is National Deep Dish Pizza Day, if you ask me, but today especially. It's also the birthday of Booker T. Washington. Let's see, Saturday is Drowsy Drive Awareness Day. You may not realize this, but driving drowsy is basically, cognitively speaking, equivalent to driving drunk. When you're really sleepy, you lose your reflex time and your perception of what's going on on the road. So try not to drive drowsy. Sunday is National Beer Day. It's also No Housework Day. I wonder if those two are related. Drink some beer and avoid the housework. It's also the birthday of Billie Holiday and the anniversary of the metric system. All right, some other stuff coming up. We have uh, Thursday is Barbershop Quartet Day. So if you're not in a barbershop quartet yet, you can form one and do some singing on Thursday. All right, let's get into some local happenings. We live in a very happening community. Coming up at Guy House on Wednesdays at 10.30 a.m., Yoga Basics for Women. This class focuses on breath and gentle movements that will help unlock the major joints in the body, thus increasing mobility, posture, and overall health. That's at Guy House, 913 South Illinois in Carbondale. Also coming up on today, Friday, we have the Sustainable Living Film Series. The Sustainable Living Film Series will be tonight at 5.30 p.m. at the back of the Long Branch Coffee House. The documentary feature this time is Carbon Nation, hosted by Dennis Conley of Affordable Solar, LLC. Discussion after the film is aimed at dialogue on how we can start a solar cooperative here in southern Illinois. 
What would that look like? How can the average person participate? For this and more, you can check that out at the Long Branch Coffee House tonight at 5.30 p.m. All right, in other happenings, if you haven't heard about this yet, it's already started. The Fuller Future Festival. The Fuller Future Festival is a three-day festival dedicated to honoring Buckminster Fuller's legacy in Carbondale and at SIU. The theme of this festival is Livingly, Designing Peace. Festival will be an opportunity to bring together artists, poets, designers, feminists, filmmakers, futurists, musicians, environmentalists, <laughs> innovators, entrepreneurs, architects, engineers, and all others interested in the legacy of Buckminster Fuller. For more information, you can visit fullerfuturefest.com. They've got lots of events going on this weekend. There's a whole big calendar that would take probably half the show to read. Also coming up, we have two events by Logic, the Local Organic Gardening Initiative of Carbondale. One is tonight, or excuse me, today from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m., going on right now at the Fainter Breezeway on the SIU campus. They're having a bake sale. They're also later today at 2 p.m. doing a drop-in workday at their plots at 3373 West Pleasant Hill Road. In other news, Habitat for Humanity of Jackson County, Jackson Union County. They're having work day tomorrow at 2006 Commercial Street in Murfreesboro, starting at 8 a.m. and working until noon. All right, and this is one of the Buckminster Fuller events, No More Secondhand Lifestyle, coming up on Saturday at 10 a.m. at the Labyrinth Peace Garden, just north of Guy House. The Labyrinth Peace Garden will be the site of a Buckminster Fuller workshop entitled No More Secondhand Living Me. This participatory workshop will explore the spiritual roots and continuing influences of Fuller's remarkable legacy. That's 913 South Illinois in Carbondale. And one more happening, the second annual Margie Parker Teach-In for Peace on Drone Policy. is coming up next Thursday, April 11th at 7 p.m. There will be a guest speaker, Robert Naiman, Policy Director at Just Foreign Policy. It's coming up Thursday at 7 p.m. at the SIU School of Law. They're also doing a march on next Saturday, April 13th, the 10th anniversary of the start of the Iraq War. This will be a march, the noon vigil, and a march with a focus on drones. All right, this has once again been an exciting and, a for, uh, <laughs> exciting and informative Your Community Spirit. I hope you've enjoyed it at least half as much as I have. And we will see you here next week on the radio.